0: Welcome to Functional Futures, a podcast where developers, compile creators, and PLT specialists talk about the future of functional programming.
1: Our today's guest is David Christensen, the executive director of the Haskell Foundation and a contributor to a number of dependently typed languages, a dependent type advocate and evangelist who, through his work, talks, and texts, has managed to introduce many people to the topic. Today, we're going to talk about dependent types and how you can work with them today. So um, I hope that the introduction covers everything you would like to cover. If there's anything you would like to add, please
0: go ahead. I'd say that I have one small point of disagreement, which is that I'm not necessarily an evangelist for dependent types. I think that they're an interesting idea and an important idea and one that's great to learn about, but I don't think that they're right for most people to use for most projects, at least not yet. Um that said, you know, progress is being made and maybe that'll be different in in a few years. Well, let's let's first talk about what
1: they are, um sure. and then we can maybe come back to that point and, and see um in, in a little yeah. bit with a little bit more rigor um uh to to, to understand our that, that opinion in a little bit more rigorous way. So how would you define dependent types actually?
0: Yeah. So Dependent types are types that can depend on values, is the usual way that it's talked about. So a way to think about it is that in uh, languages like Haskell and Java, you can have a type which takes another type as an argument. So you might have a type called list, but list isn't really a type until you tell it what the type of the things in the list are. So you could say list of int, or... List of string, or list of list of list of list of int, and this process of applying the type to another type gives you a type. So people will often um, talk about the 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 argument type being like a parameter to the type. Um, and in a dependently typed language, you can have parameters that are not types themselves. So you could say, I have a list of 5 ints, or I have a list of 20 ints, or I have a list of 0 ints, and you could say that uh, the type of appending of the operator that appends two lists isn't list of a to list of a to list of a, but it's instead list of n a's to list of k a's to list of n plus k a's, and that that's valid for any natural numbers or any lengths n and k. Um, And dependent types are interesting from a number of perspectives, I think. One of them is that they allow us to write very precise types down. Another is that they allow us to write very flexible types down. So you could say that, you know, depending on the value of this boolean that the user generates as input to the program, the answer is gonna be either an int or a string. You know, the the caller picks which thing I return. and that, that particular case isn't the most useful thing, but you can build very useful things on top of that. Um, you know, so you could, for example, have a representation of a database schema as a data type. And from the representation of the schema, you could derive a type, which represents the result of a query against that schema, and then arrange your database library to take care of all this stuff. Um, and aside from being sort of both more precise and more flexible than non-dependent types, Dependent types are also interesting because, you know, depending on the specifics of the system you're building them in, they allow your type system to be used as a fully-fledged logic for proving things about your program. So on the one hand, you know, we like to have precise types that encode various invariants about our data, but on the other hand, sometimes we also just want to sit down and crank out a mathematical proof that says um, that, you know, a program lives up to its specification, whatever that might be. Um, And some people are also wanting to use the logic of the type theory just to do ordinary mathematics and not even sort of program verification tasks. I'm an absolute garbage mathematician, so I don't use them in that way, so I have very little to say about that. But it does exist.
1: Right. Right. You you provided in in your elaboration of what uh, dependent types are the iconic I think example of uh, list equip- equipped or indexed by length. Yeah. Um, is it your favorite uh, way to to like show off uh, dependent types to like beginners, or is there yeah. something something you would show to because you know your other example with database schemas. It's uh, very hard, like difficult, for a person to envision right. if they don't have a background in absolutely encoding something like this. Uh, yeah. Do you have something like in in the middle uh, that you <laughs> yes you know uh, reach yeah. for to to, to explain yeah. something like mm-hmm. yeah?
0: So 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 first the a little bit of defense of the of the length indexed list. I went through a period of time where I would play length indexed list bingo in a talk, you know, and like mark off on my card whenever someone got to that example because everyone uses that example and it's kind of not the most interesting example in the world so i absolutely get the, the the frustration with it but on the other hand it's it's a classic example because it has like a little bit of every kind of complexity you get with a data type so it actually you know it's got um one of one of its arguments the type of the elements of the list is the same no matter how long the list is another one changes which is the number Um, so it's got, you know, a parameter and an index, as they say in the business, it has, um, the ability to drive some interesting, like programmer user interface automation stuff without, you know, it's simple. So it's actually a very good example in a lot of ways, but from a practical perspective, yeah, I get it. Um, the, the, the second example I'd like to use is this example of having, one data type that represents the types of some little language that you're implementing. So maybe it's got, uh, so we got like our data is our data type, let's call it T it'll have one constructor called Nat, which represents, you know, the natural numbers type. It'll have another constructor called bool, which represents booleans in our language that we're implementing. And then it might have a, a type constru- uh, or it might have a, a data constructor called arrow, which represents the function type. Then we can define a type of expressions which are parameterized over a list of these types which gives you the typing context and the type that the expression actually has such that you cannot write down an expression that has the wrong type and you cannot write down a variable that isn't in scope um, and this is certainly an example that's only compelling for people who think that lambda calculus is the the easy thing they understand that they want to use to understand the new system. You know, if you're, if you're still learning Lambda calculus, this is not a good example. So it's certainly going to depend on the audience. But for people who know that, you can then proceed to define a type of values, which are also indexed by the type. And then you can write a little interpreter. And it turns out that you can write a function from the type, uh, from the representation of the type, of your sort of object language types, you know, like the bool, the nat, and the arrow, you can write a function from that to the actual types of your dependently typed programming language. So you can have a function that sort of case splits on that data type, and for the bool constructor, it returns the actual type of booleans. For the nat constructor, it returns the actual type of natural numbers. And for the arrow constructor, it returns an actual function type whose uh, argument and return types are found by, recur- by recursion. And then you can just, you can write a function which says, you know, given a list, uh, given a suitable environment, uh, suitable runtime environment, so I can look up my variables, um, I'm going to produce something with the right type. And it's just a really cool example showing how you can, because on the one hand, you've implemented a programming language, but on the other hand, you've also carved out some selection of the surrounding language that you're working in. And that's a really powerful tool to use for writing dependently type programs. So Yeah, that's that's really cool. I think it's a really funny tool. Yeah,
1: example. it is. And and it's also uh, we have so much um, so many blog posts already about like, you know, writing embedded DSLs in Haskell, for example. Yeah. That it's very yeah. I think it's very relatable to well, and I mean it, mm-hmm. there, these blog posts are out there for a reason right we, we write a lot of yeah. embedded DSLs and it's very nice to to have this sort of like advanced facility as well while, while we encode stuff like this um, yeah. so um, um, you already mentioned that that you aren't uh, you aren't evangelists or you, you don't think that hundred percent of programs should be written in like dependent that way um, Uh, But I'll ask, I'll ask this question anyway, because I have, I have a very, it's a, it's a very interesting question for me personally, as, um, uh, like Quinn Sirocco and a lot of people in the FPN industry are looking into, um, perhaps industrializing dependently typed systems. So we know really well, we, as a society, how to sell well typed systems to, to business, to the, to businesses, right. To our
0: customers. Um. So here you're thinking speedy refactoring and um you know certain kinds of tests you don't have to write anymore yeah, yeah, This kind of like stuff. This. Yeah, stuff
1: yeah stuff like this um and then, you know our sales can have like a very nice like you know uh, bingo card that can like r- reverse engineer into into a sales speech. uh yeah do, do you think there's a similar methodology for dependently typed systems and can there even be one, uh, given, as you mentioned, how like different dependently time systems have different, perhaps, implementation trade-offs and stuff like this? What are your thoughts on this?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, different programming languages always have different trade-offs, right? I mean, Haskell and OCaml have pretty different implementation trade-offs. And there's certainly things where I'd rather use OCaml and things where I'd rather use Haskell and things where I'd rather use neither of them because a garbage collector would get in the way. And then I might look at Rust or C or something like that. Um, you know, it's, there's, there's no one programming language that is going to solve every problem in the best way. And this is probably going to reflect my complete lack of experience in sales. But if I'm going to try to sell something to someone, first, I want to understand what their needs actually are and find a way to actually meet them. So, um, one, one context where I've used, uh, some dependently typed, like features of Haskell in at, at work. There we had a large verification system and we really wanted to avoid a lot of certain kinds of bugs and so there maintaining invariance through our data types was a pretty good argument. Um, in other contexts, I think that the ability to do more interesting things with DS, with embedded DSLs could be a good way to sell something if that was relevant for the person. Um, I think that being able to model aspects of a program that you can't model without, that you can't at least conveniently model without dependent types could be an interesting thing. But it's, for me, it would really depend entirely on who I'm talking to and what their problems are and seeing whether the dependent types actually do solve their problems. And You know, I I don't want to. I don't want to like talk down the thing that I love because it is a thing that I love. But I I also think it's important to not try to like just just because I've I've got this screwdriver that I'm a big fan of. You know, I don't want to use it to like start pounding in nails. Like it's 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 not right for everything, and it's going to get right for more things as we learn more as a as a community as you know researchers make more cool stuff as implementations get better as we get more resources invested in high quality implementations and high quality instructional materials and training you know today the big thing i would worry about is where do you find people who can maintain this and that's that's a real thing to worry about because you know like it's certainly much more common for people to have an idea of what dependent types are than they used to or to have maybe done some dabbling with agda or um you know, like a, an undergraduate verification course that used software foundations. Like th- these things exist a lot more than they used to, but it's still a pretty niche skill. So, um, you know, just, just because the thing isn't super useful for all industrial problems yet doesn't mean it'll never be. It doesn't mean it doesn't have value. It doesn't mean it isn't wonderful and beautiful and fantastic, but just because something is wonderful, beautiful and fantastic doesn't mean that we should necessarily inflict that on everyone around us at all times.
1: My, my huge hypothesis is that um, whoever will, so you you mentioned database HEMAS. Yeah. um what you how the way you were describing this stuff made me think about uh, Haskell's library called servant and the family mm-hmm. of uh, it and it even does a little bit of dependently typed ish mm-hmm. ask things right with like type level strings and stuff. Yeah. um and generating like implementations for for apis automatically and and whatnot um so yeah i mean if if i would have to so so from talking to you i, I would i would say that uh maybe you know writing servant uh reporting servant mm-hmm. to some dependently typed um system and then kind of selling it for Whatever high assurance web servers, right? because yeah. we sometimes really need to respond to some requests like for example, if we're taking some um, um, providing some emergency API for for, for physical mm-hmm. emergencies or, and stuff like this or or maybe our nuclear uh, power plant uh, uh, okay. our, our sensors are going off and we really want to uh, make sure that like a particular sure. type of sensor would would trigger a particular type of response. Um, um, yeah, so s- stuff like this. So I think, I think that like whoever will implement yeah. like servant in lean, uh, will, will at least uh, be at the yeah. head of like uh, hundreds of thousands so. of dollars worth uh, project, I think. Yeah.
0: So, so I haven't ever used servant. Like my, my industrial Haskell experience has mostly been on Either things that talk to text editors over a local socket or command line batch mode stuff. And so I've read about servant, but I've but I don't have concrete experience. But my based on everything I say, like it is basically using dependent types. I mean like the the based on the definition I gave earlier, which which is what people would usually say, like full spectrum dependent types. You know, types are first-class things, you can return them from functions, you know, they can they can be passed to functions they can be computed with like we have a lot of that in haskell and we get more and more like like as soon as we got gadgets you know G- generalized algebraic data types so for those who may not know what that is it's where you have a data type in haskell that takes a type argument and then the choice of constructor can cause that type argument to have a certain value right so you can um and as soon as you do that, you have a runtime value, which is that data constructor, which is determining a type. So that is one form of dependent types. You know, it's, it's, it's not some, in, in my opinion, it's depending on exactly why you want to say whether a thing has dependent types or not. Like maybe, you know, maybe you want to do some mathematics and then you need a specific thing and, and that's great, you know, be specific with your definitions. But when it comes to the kind of things you can achieve with it, like, You know Haskell for a decade now has been able to do a lot of what you can do with many dependently typed systems, and and I've used those things and had gotten a lot of value out of them for the kinds of things you're talking about. So it's it's less of an either or, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. That's for most content.
1: Yeah. That's that's a very constructive, um, constructive, constructive way to put it. Um, But for me, when when for example I read like servant. Code or, or I, I hmm. even read the code that uh, uses um, kind of types, oh, sorry, values in the type level, like lifted yeah. values. I feel like just ergo- ergonomics of it is just kind of, it feels it's a okay. little bit like writing, I don't know, C boost libraries yeah. where you have, yeah. you by the, by the way in boost you also have right like you can parameterize stuff like with five and stuff and you also <laughs> sure, kind of sure. have dependent type facilities there so it, it kind of feels a little bit like C++ boost libraries uh which is great right but I mean um mm. so so um
0: yeah and and actually i I agree so in my experience when when writing haskell in that style which which I did some back when I worked at gawa um, I would essentially write a write some code, like, in Idris in my head and kind of feel like I was hand-compiling it. Kind of like people used to write C code in their head and, like, hand-compile it to assembly code when they were doing assembly. It was very much that kind of a feeling. Like, I think that uh, it's certainly easier to use than it used to be, and we have better features for it now than we did in the past, but it's... You can definitely tell that Haskell as a language wasn't designed for that style of programming to start with, and that it was added on later in a way to be backwards compatible. I think they've done a great job under those constraints, but um you know, when you design something to to do something from the start, then you can certainly make it more convenient than when it's added, you know, uh when when the language is old enough to vote. Right. Uh
1: in in almost all the in I think in all the countries, right?
0: Well, um Yeah, yeah, I had to think for a second yeah, yeah. there. I'm like, okay, so, you know, 1990 to, to 2000 you know to 2010 ish like that That'll yeah
1: yeah That's also crazy how t- how t- how time flies well um yeah but i mean in 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 the community i have a feeling i yeah sadly i i don't program a lot these days and yeah. uh, whenever i have to participate in somewhat technical discussion i feel like i'm failing at my job but i had to sometimes jump Kind of on the semi-technical discussions about ergonomics of dependent types, and yeah. in Sirocco, and I'm 99% sure that uh, I can safely assume that for Twig as well, uh, we are very on the boat of ergonomic dependent types in Haskell, yeah. whereas uh, yeah. there is, I feel, uh, still a sentiment in the community that says Types should be types. Values should be values. You can have your little operators to like lift one to to the other if you really, if it pleases mm-hmm. you. Uh, but uh, we shouldn't kind of, um, junk, jun- kind of put it all in one blob. Um, and there are a lot of arguments. Um, one of the most um, popular one is that. Well, okay. You you now you lift your uh, values to your type level, and now now you are writing like type level bugs instead of like runtime bugs. Mm -hmm. Like if you're if you kind of don't get the model right, then you won't get it right no matter which tools you use. And um, there's also some pedagogical um, remarks that oh, it's going to be harder to teach or something like that. So what's Mm -hmm. how do you feel about? this stuff, where do you stand? If it's, if it's okay to ask a person in your position, uh, that sort of
0: question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to give you my honest answer, but it, you probably won't be satisfied, which is that I don't think that with any programming language related question that there's ever, uh, that, 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 that you ever get a useful answer from saying like, what should be done? I think you get useful answers by saying what should be done by these people in this situation with these resources and this background and these goals and these constraints. And I I think that there is absolutely a real risk that if the, the, the Haskell culture, Haskell culture in particular, could evolve to be something that only experts can get involved in and only people with sort of deep experience and deep background. And, and then we'll, but, but one thing about only letting in experts is that you stop making new experts. And then, so that would be a real problem for the community if we sort of essentially isolate us from the rest of programming and never let anyone new in because we you know pull up the rope ladder behind us when we climb up to our, to our type castle. Um, so I, I do think it's very important that whatever we're doing, we maintain a way in for, for other people. And that we don't make it impossible to do something that Haskell has been very good at for decades now, which is, you know, Hindley Milner plus uh, higher kinded types plus uh, type classes. Like that, that that's really a nice way to program, and it's really effective. And I don't, I, I think it's important that we don't break that because certain programs and certain contexts aren't going to gain anything from fancier types, and they're So, so if we make everybody pay for it, but only a few people get to use it, that might be a problem, depending on what they have to pay. You know, if what they pay is, um, you know, maybe their, their compiler is a five megabyte bigger download than it otherwise would be, probably that's fine. You know, if what they pay is their compiler takes an hour instead of 10 minutes to, to build their code base and, um, and it's got a whole bunch of obscure bugs that it wouldn't have had because it got more complicated, that, that, that that might be an issue. So. I think it's important that we listen to a variety of people and take their perspectives and experiences seriously. Right, um, and, and, and and part of that variety are the people who want to do the fancy types. Like I want to do fancy types a lot of the time, but I, I also think it's important to not have to do them all the time.
1: Right. Um, well, I, I don't want to to turn this into into a, a debate panel, uh, but I just I, I would yeah, just yeah. like to mention a couple of things. Uh, I yeah. heard this argument about uh, increasing the amount of bugs in the compiler, and I agree yeah. with it to a degree, but also uh, while uh, working on all the levels of the compiler, uh, both uh, yeah. we and Sirocco and people in Twig found a lot of bugs and fixed them, right? So we're kind of... Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Um, um, so, so there, there might be that sweet spot of, uh, of, uh, when, when we still didn't, you know, uh, introduce new bugs, but already fixed the old ones because we're, we're going really deep into the code base. And another yeah. thing is that, uh, there was w- during the mass exodus of Simons, right? Uh, or at least, at least one Simon.
0: I mean, <laughs> there, there were two Simons and. Now there is one Simon working regularly on GHC. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, and and, and Simon Marlow is still around and still doing cool stuff. But,
1: uh, but less GHC. Yeah. So, so there was a real fear, I think, that that uh, um, we will run out of people who who understand GHC on all the levels. So, in a way, in, in a way, yeah. doing huge things like uh, linear types or like dependent types, uh, also you know, edu kind of creates new compiler sure. uh, engineers for Haskell to, to maintain it further on and um, finally I want to say one thing um, as a beginner um, when I was a beginner in Haskell I um, I don't remember which particular extension uh, it was it, it it had to do something with with higher kind of stuff um, and I was I was listening to uh, to Simon Peyton Johnson's talk um, and he said something like, Oh, we are introducing this stuff gradually, kind of for pedagogical reasons to not confuse beginners. But I was extremely confused with lack of, um, thoroughness and the abstraction that's provided to me. Right. It was Absolutely. like, I like many people come to Haskell with at least some background in, in discrete mathematics. I mean, I know that it's a m- m- like myth. But like, at least there is some amateur understanding of I don't know, like group theory, like uh, abstract algebra, and stuff like this. And for me, it just felt weird to 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 have like partially implemented obstructions. Um, so there's this thing to consider as well. But yeah, let's let, let's not go too, too deep into this. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so. Um, um, yeah, I guess we can we can wrap up the. The Haskell questions with 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 asking the the following. So you mentioned that. So, sure. What do do you feel like we will navigate this uh, initiative, and the Haskell will become a proper vessel for for dependent types?
0: Isn't it already? Oh, okay. That's that's a very nice answer. Sorry. Um, so, I mean. I can I can I can elaborate on that a little bit. Um, I think that the design space for dependently typed languages is absolutely gigantic. Um, you know, it, it, if you look at if you look at sort of languages in the broad ML family, like you know Haskell was until recently. <laughs> I guess it still is, depending on which flags you turn on, right? But like, take Haskell twenty ten, clearly in the ML family. Um, Standard ML, clearly in the ML family. OCaml, clearly in the ML family. They all make different design decisions on a different, uh, in various ways, right? Like, you know, Haskell has type classes and polymorphic recursion. Standard ML has equality types and it has, you know, uh, generative functors. Um, yeah, uh, OCaml has all the features, you know, but applicative functors by default and here, applicative functors doesn't mean what it means in Haskell, like, um, you know, like, but it has to do with like the way the module system works. Right. You know, um, whereas Haskell almost doesn't have a module system to speak of. You know, it's it's got files with code, and you can hide some names, but nothing along the lines of what you see in standard ML and OCaml. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, like Backpack is is a thing, but it's not commonly used the way that that modules are in ML. And and just in in this area, there's you get really different practical trade-offs with respect to all these different features, and they all work differently, and and, and they're all interesting points in the design space. But once you get dependent types in a language, then your design space just absolutely explodes. So some examples of decisions you can make that are in the sort of well-explored areas of dependent type languages. One of, like, remember I was talking earlier about uh, appending to length indexed lists, and we've got the, we've got the return of that saying uh, n plus k being the length. Well, what if I'd written k plus n there? Like, should it be a type error or should it not be a type error? And, and that right there exposes a huge gap in, like, how do we interpret the meaning of plus? Like, are we going to define it as a recursive function that's working on some partially symbolic values? or Are we going to be appealing to an SMT solver? Are we going to be doing, like, proof search across the thing, the properties that somebody has proved about equality? Like, all three of those exist in languages. Um, and they all give very, very different user experience trade-offs. And that's just for that one little aspect. Another thing is, let's say we write some proofs, or let's say we have a data type which includes a few proofs that it's well-formed. Like maybe you've got a list which contains a proof on every cons cell, which says that the thing you're adding to the list doesn't already exist in it. How do, I, what does it mean to compare two of those lists for equality? Well, that means like we have to compare the proof objects for equality and different design decisions about the way that proof objects are represented can make that easy or difficult, um, interesting or boring. Um, you know, we, and it just goes on and on and on. And, you know, some interesting work going on there. Like, like we have sort of the big dependently the type languages like uh, Coq and Agda and Idris and Lean, and they're all fairly similar. Like they, they make quite a few different decisions in those areas, but... But then if you go and you take a look at something like Sedil that Aaron Stump's group is working on at the University of Iowa, or you look at uh, zombie trellis that Stephanie Weirich and, uh, and her students, uh, Wilhelm and Chris, were working on before they graduated, like they have very, very different answers to these kinds of questions. And all of them are super interesting. And as Haskell is growing dependent types, it's growing them in a very different way from something like Agda or Idris, and that means that these trade-offs are going to be very, very different. So, for example, people look and they say, oh, well, the type of type is type in Haskell. Like, that's a logical problem. But but actually, it's not, because it. what it means is that you have to be strict in your proof objects. We have to be that anyway, because that's how gadgets work. Um, and doing that allows the a lot of other things in the language to be significantly simpler. And so... Haskell plus dependent types is just it's it's never gonna be Agda, and that's okay. It's gonna be its own thing, and it's gonna have different trade-offs than those, and we're all getting richer for it. So that that's me with my researcher hat on. Then me with my like I like to program and get things done hat on. Um Haskell is the only sort of reasonably dependently typed language that has the kind of library ecosystem that means you can actually get stuff done. You know, it's it's got uh, an advanced mature compiler to a much greater extent than others, which are sort of less in that state. Like so, so there's there's a lot to recommend it already today. Um, do I wish that the user interface for doing dependently type things was easier? Absolutely. But but I but to claim that Haskell is not a good spot for dependent types today, I think, is taking a bit too myopic a view of what dependent types. Are and can be, and the kinds of things that they're good for and not good for, and where we get the values.
1: That's so. That was the short answer and the long answer. <laughs>
0: that's that's that's
1: both both answers are very good. Um, both answers are are um, were, very were very good. And um, yeah, I mean, um, I'm I'm a simple person. I just wanted to write less uh, colon colon proxy, and if it's uh, if yes, if someone will, will yes, I I fully agree. All right.
0: <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you for visible type applications.
1: Um, So, let's wrap up the whole pedagogical stuff with me asking you about, uh, you you were very humble to say, well, you're, you know, proponent, but not evangelist, but I mean, you wrote uh, the Little Typer book, right? Or co-authors, right?
0: So, yeah, me and Dan Friedman.
1: And um, it's... As far as I understand, it's an homage to the little schemer, right?
0: Um, I'd say that it's a sequel oh, wow. rather than homage. Like um I mean so so like the so the, the little schemer is based on the little lisper, which Dan wrote way back when. And then in, in later editions his student Matthias got involved and so the I, I, I forget which edition that was in. But so but but certainly by the time the Little Lisper becomes the Little Schemer, Matthias was involved as well. Um, but you know Dan has been involved in a number of sequels, like the Season schemer, which is talking about control operators and continuations and all sorts of cool stuff like that. you know the reason schemer where there's a this logic language mini canron that that he built together with Oleg Kiselyev and uh will bird and and the latest in the second edition that just came out uh his other student was also involved there um and you know, there's the little prover, which is an ACL2 style system. So, so essentially, Dan's got this thing going where he gets interested in something, and then he wants to understand it deeply. So he finds somebody who knows about it, and then they and then works together with them to create a a little book. And, and so these little books are all written in dialogue form. They all make a point of not using complicated mathematical examples. Um, ideally, the examples are all food because everyone can relate to food. Um, you know, they try to cook things down to their simplest essence. They try to be short, although we failed at that with the little typer. It ended up longer than we wished it Hopefully was. Hopefully not five megabytes but, um. longer. <laughs> it's uh, It ended up being like, I think, 420-ish pages. I don't know the exact number, but over 400 pages. You know, we were. I, I was kind of hoping we'd write around 250 pages, but... But I, you know I had an idea of what what does basic competence with like the core type theory of of one of these classical dependent type languages entail? I think it means that you can prove that equality of natural numbers is decidable. and that that's how long it took us to get there without skipping steps and leaving people behind. So that's what we did. Uh, but yeah, so so, so the little typer, the idea is really to help people who don't have a deep background in formal mathematical logic to get a sort of intuitive understanding of the core th- theories that are used in languages like Coq and Agda and Lean and Idris and 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 so such that you could go on and maybe have an easier time learning the the full-on version with all the greek letters and and also you know get an appreciation of what's going on behind the scenes in those languages so we we don't really teach you how to do anything practical with dependent types in that book we try to we try to help you get a, a feeling in your gut for how they work such that you can then maybe do a better job learning the practical things somewhere else
1: and uh did you implement uh dependently typed lisp or was that a thing like how uh, how? yeah tell, tell us about about the so... programming language that you use there
0: yeah. yeah so we, we invented our own programming language for the book and the reason we did this is because working in the core language of one of these type theories is extremely tedious You have to write down a ton of details that where the then the implementation is going to go look and say like you know did essentially check did you write the same thing in these eight places Yes you did gold star and on the one hand we wanted to have short readable examples and on the other hand, uh, we didn't want the book to be 800 pages, so so that meant that we couldn't really use the existing systems and turn off all the fancy features. On the other hand, we um, we didn't want to use all the fancy features because there's other books that already do that. You know, if if you want to learn how to how to do formalized mathematical proofs using dependent types, you know, you can look at like software foundations, type theory, and formal proof. All these other, there's a bunch of these books out there these days, and so any of my colleagues and friends whose books I didn't just name, I apologize in advance because I didn't think of a list ahead of time. But, um, but we really wanted to have, uh, a, to just to do something different with this book that we didn't think that others were doing, and so we made our own language, and it's a lot of people think it's dependently typed Lisp, but I think for a language to count as Lisp. It should have a lot of these features like it should have parenthetical syntax it should have a macro system it should be dynamically typed it should have you know first class functions um, at least and you know pi the language we use in our book isn't the lisp i don't think like it has parenthetical syntax and it has first class functions but none of the other things um, we used a parenthetical syntax partly because we like it um we you know, I, I like writing Lisp. Uh, I write, I've write. i written a fair bit of, like, Racket Code and Emacs Lisp and Common Lisp back in the day. It's one of the languages that I love, in addition to Haskell and these dependently typed languages. Um, you know, Dan's whole career has been built around Lisp and Scheme. Um, so we, we, we both like that notation. But also we wanted to have a dependently typed language that was simple enough that people who read the book could understand how the implementation worked without needing to learn a lot of new concepts. And I think we were partially successful at that. We, we really wanted to have the whole source code to the implementation be in the end of the book, but it was too long. So we sort of transcribed it down into like mathematical rule notation. And then I wrote some supplementary tutorials and other materials to understand it, plus two sort of pedagogical implementations, one in Racket and one in Haskell. And one nice feature of parenthetical syntax is that a parser is very easy to write compared to... Something with operator precedence and infix things. So, you know, if if you want to sit down and implement Pi in JavaScript, that would be awesome. And hopefully, we've made your life easier by using the parenthetical syntax.
1: That's really, that's really cool. And also, um, the full implementation is a nice uh, is a nice appendix for for the collector's edition.
0: Uh... <laughs> yeah. Or or you can go on GitHub and download it <laughs> and take a look at
1: it. Uh, but there there is a beauty, right? Uh, couple podcasts ago, my guest was a game designer, and he said that yeah. one of the reasons he really likes making physical board games is that um, with with some of the digital artifacts, they kind of rot way quicker than paper, as it turned yeah. out. And uh, yeah. yeah, so, but, but uh, box with a board game, even right. after a hundred of years, maybe some kid will discover it in the attic and learned so yeah um um that's 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 a really really cool set of answers because yeah for me my initial um reaction was like oh why why not strip down some idris or something like that and and then that's that's a very very insightful thing and also um it's really cool to learn that there are so many the little things which which means that uh, i'll have a whole another um, series of books to read after I'm done with uh, Terry Pratchett's uh, novels. Nice. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's, it's a format that doesn't work for everyone. You know, I, I think people are pretty split on the little format, whether the, some people find the dialogue slow and maddening, and they want to use it as a reference book, and it doesn't work for that. Um, whereas other people sort of like the sort of drip by drip, and the presentation style, and the little side diverges. So. You know, if you don't like
1: it, right. I'm not a There is there is a. But, huh? Have you read the little Uh of? No, sadly not. Have you read the little Typer? It's okay now, uh, especially it's on my bucket list. Um, cool. mm, yeah, I mean that's that's the thing, right? Like um, it really depends of on when the where the person is standing uh, on the uh, spectrum of intermediacy, right? If a person is already intermediate, yes. wiki. Yes. Is enough, right? But I remember trying to learn the notion of a functor for the first time as a kid, and it was just it, okay. I
0: was I was well into my twenties. It was but. well. I mean, I'm, yeah. I mean,
1: it's well. Actually, the the way that the way I started learning Haskell was uh, I was working um, as a teenager. I was working as a PHP programmer. And um, a person who nice. who knew way more about computer programming told me that I write PHP as if, you know, I should go check out Haskell. He said, <laughs> uh, "Yeah, cool. but it was really difficult. We we barely had this um, yeah um, learn yourself a Haskell book, right?"
0: Oh, I didn't have that when I was learning. I had the 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 so called gentle oh. introduction. I, I if you remember I, that one. Maybe that's from before people's time, like in the early two thousands. It was the the tutorial. No, no, used. I I
1: used Haskell Wiki and uh, learn yourself a Haskell, and okay. um, but learn yourself a Haskell is very dialogue esque It's very drip by drippy, right? Yeah, and it was very very good f- f- to to understand stuff. But like when I tr- when I would try to like refer to to Wiki as a complete beginner, it was just very hard. I guess we should. Go to more like non Haskell, non, non toy okay. uh, world of like yeah. real defendant types and stuff. And, um. Real defendant um, types.
0: Okay.
1: So first, first thing that, that I personally am very like, I'm, I don't have a very good understanding of. So you mentioned, uh, proofs. Or proof objects, right? That you sure. would attach to, yeah, to, uh, to statements demonstrating how how things of different of types, depending on different values, combine combine under some function, let's say, right? And would prove, right, of some, okay. it would prove that the thing type checks, right? Yeah.
0: Um I wouldn't no, it doesn't prove that the thing type checks. The, uh, oh sorry, sorry, yeah. It would prove
1: that when we it would but, require but, me to submit something an addition to the values to demonstrate that
0: uh, Yeah, you can formulate systems that way for sure. And that the type checker will make sure that your supposed yep. proof in fact is a proof. And is it
1: is, is it why uh kind of formal verification or like proof assistants
0: come hand in hand with dependent types or oh. so so the a lot of the initial interest in dependent types was from the from the perspective of people wanting to work on the philosophical p- project of the foundations of mathematics like if, if you read like Martin or early stuff especially like you can really see like a, a strong thread back to the early 20th century foundations project sort of with some extra some extra um, tempering with like intuitionism and a bit of like phenomenology like you know there's there's some marks from Husserl if you know where to look and and so from the very start i'd say it's actually not been thought of so much as a programming tool but rather as a tool for doing mathematics and and then eventually we get a machine where we can take this foundational theory and put it in and use it. And you know, Coq from the start was a tool for doing math, not so much a programming language. Like you, you certainly write programs in it, but that's not so much what it was. What it was really there for. And you know, if you read if you read papers on programming languages from the '90s, people say like, "Oh, we can't do that because that would require dependent types, which is like clearly an absurd idea." <laughs> and you know, as opposed to today when you read it, people are like, We must do that because it requires dependent types. But um, but so so one I, I I think one place where this started to change, right? Um was like, you know, people were certainly writing programs in Coq, but they were writing programs in the subset of Coq that's very much like, you know, system F or ML, and then using the dependent types kind of on the side to prove properties about the program. And that's a really effective way to do things, and it works really well, and it's scaled up to, like, a full C compiler. Um, but, but it wasn't so convenient to have programs that which were themselves dependently typed. So where a lot of these things come from is a system called Epigram that was developed by Connor McBride and James McKenna. Um, and, you know, Edwin Brady worked on it and a bunch of other people, too. And Epigram was, was never more, I think, than an artistic statement or a dream. I, I resurrected its code so it could build with modern GHCs. Uh, you do need to have Xemax installed to do to use its user interface, so that can be tough on newer computers. So I, I haven't had time to port the UI to GNU Emacs, but but it's essentially using Xemax as like a dumb terminal with mouse support, and it's implemented the entire uh, editing thing behind the scenes, and it's got this 2D syntax and all sorts of cool stuff, but what it also has is a convenient notation for programming with dependent types using pattern matching and recursion that that's nice to read and nice to use and so it, that and it was you know once epigram had sort of made its artistic statement then we started getting things like the equations package and Coq and we got agda2 and uh, idris and, and lean which take a lot of the techniques and a lot of the thoughts from epigram and sort of build on build further on them and now we have convenient programming with dependent types like for, you know, depending on, on who you are and what you find convenient, but certainly for things that I find convenient in, in all of those languages. So it really came from the math to the programming rather than the other way around.
1: That's really, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, so, and when, when we, if we circle back to um, to ergonomic dependent types in Haskell, um, yeah. you mentioned pr- figuring out trade-offs for uh, proof objects there as well. Right, Uh, is how the way I imagine it, and this is the continuation of of this question, right? For me, um, Hmm. it's um, very difficult to understand straight away um, how would we, for example, take some uh, bytes uh, from the wire and transform them into a particular... or parse them into a particular dependently typed object. Now that that I use the term parsing, perhaps exactly like that. Perhaps we will have parser, which will have, as you mentioned, like branching um, uh, stuff. That's right. Um, And then we'll be able to use these values of these types. Let's say uh, if we use the handy list n to, Mm -hmm. to then go to the pure world of our programs and, and then use it as uh, this object with the d- dependently typed objects as, as arguments. Sure. But where do you, where do proof objects come come into play here? I kind of can't see them.
0: Yeah. So where proof objects are going to come into play is typically like when you're doing programming then the proof objects are typically showing up in a context where the types don't quite line up for reasons that the, the compiler can't figure out on its own, right? So, so when you're running a type checker, like anytime you design a type checker, there's sort of two questions to, to figure out how to answer. One of them is when are two types considered to be equivalent to one another? And the other is when and how do I check that? And, and those are sort of the, like, the, 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 your answers to those will guide the design of the rest of your type checker. And, um, it happens to be the case that any sort of sufficiently interesting type checker is gonna disappoint you when, when, when talking about when are two things considered the same. And, and, and you're gonna be disappointed because you want it to do sort of arbitrary mathematical reasoning for you, but any type checker that actually did that would be either slow or error prone or tend to fall into loops. And, and there's, there's practical reasons why you can't do it. And also, like, depending on your language, mathematical reasons why you can't, like, you could solve the halting problem. And so the, so what you end up with is an equational theory of the values inside of the types that is somehow insufficient, but that the, the machine can check on its own. And then you have all the other things that you would like the type checker to con- t- consider to be equal to one another, but where you've got to give it some evidence that it can check. And, and so, so on the one side, you've got the things that are, that just are the same as each other. And then on the other, you've got the things that, um, that are equivalent in some way that requires you to do the work. And then the, and then the computer just checks that you did the work right. And the, so, so equality proof objects are, the th- The evidence that is used to equate two things that the compiler can't see are the same on its own. Um, other kinds of proof objects you might have um, you know you can you can start you can start embedding um, your various logical operators like um, conjunction you get by having like and by having a pair of proofs of of the two things that are being conjoined. Uh, disjunction or you get by having essentially the either type with with the proofs in each branch. Um, implication you get out of a function. Um, a dependent function gives you universal quantification. Uh, the 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 empty type you know the thing we call void in Haskell is uh, false like the false proposition. Um, you know uh, saying that a thing implies false is negation. And. So in some sense there isn't really like a uh, there isn't a formal notion of what constitutes a proof object. I'd, I'd say it's a pragmatic thing like how are you using it in your program. In the same sense that like it's not always clear like what is business logic and what is configuration, like it, it's kind of a fuzzy boundary. Uh, some languages give you specific technical means of marking the proofs, um, like in in. Talk and in Lean you have this notion of a, of a type being a proposition and then types that are propositions have some special effects related to them but, but generally speaking you might also want to write proofs that aren't propositions and in both those systems anyway so I think it's really it's, a pragmatic question like are you using this for its logical power rather than just a very
1: very it. nice and insightful question and so so I'm I'm so we can say that Because this is, I think, it's familiar to most of our uh, listeners who are uh, Haskell professionals, right? When when GHC can't figure something out, you say, you even say something as as simple as like column column type somewhere, and then it's like, oh, okay. So sometimes it it can infer something, right? And and this may be uh, applied to inference, right? Uh, This it is but problem. i yeah. think that it's also like uh, very interesting to to observe that it has kind of the similar re- like reasons behind it right yeah. so sometimes yeah so 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 sure. um um okay that's that's cool that's that's interesting um yeah um so many of us already have experienced uh, something similar to to writing like a proof object in independent, independent Haskell in, in in our work when, when we're when we would deal with inference, right? I kind of want to already uh, start talking about Lean, but I don't think that it's fair to 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 skip Idris because um, okay. um, I
0: Idris is cool. Yeah, like it, is, it is
1: very cool, and and you have contributed to it a little bit, right?
0: Um, so I, I contributed, I'd say, a fair bit to oh. the first version of Idris, and almost nothing to the second. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I don't know if it's still the case, but last I looked, I had second most commits on Idris 1 after the main developer, Edwin Brady. Um, I started off when I was at a summer school during my PhD program where Edwin was teaching a little tutorial on using Idris, and there was no tab completion at the REPL, and that bothered me, so I was like, all right, I'm going to make a pull request. I was like, that was kind of fun. Okay. Uh, And then I just kind of got carried away, and it ended up taking over my entire PhD project because I was working on like a DSL thing, and I was like, okay, I wanted a dependent type in the DSL. How do I implement that? Maybe I can reuse bits of Idris. How do I re- reuse bits of Idris in a principled way? Hmm, let's do some meta program, and, and it just kind of escalated from there. Um, where um, you know, so so working on Idris, I did uh, I, you know, I, I I had a lot of fun working on the interactive experience, like the. Um, like the, the sort of Emacs based ID that I was contributing to, like we, I did features like interactive error messages. So if you had, you could like right click on a term and an error message and like normalize it in place without leaving the context of the error. That was really good. That's
1: fun. so good. Um,
0: but, um, and then, uh, and you know, I also, I did the, the metaprogramming system and the there's essentially the ability to do unsafe perform IO in the type system was my master's thesis. <laughs> Because I, I was trying to do something kind of like F sharp's type providers, but with ha, without having it be a code generation step. Um, I don't know that we have time to actually get into what those are, but type providers is a super cool feature in F sharp. So people listening who don't know what it is should go check it out. All right. Um, um... But yeah, I, I was working on other things, and then Idris 2 got developed, and it's got a lot of really nice features, but I, I just haven't had the time to work on it, unfortunately. And, so I I also recommend checking out Idris 2.
1: Right. Maybe maybe um, maybe if you if you uh, if you'll teach at some summer school, maybe you'll inspire someone to uh, to, to look at Idris 2 and uh, go uh, and fall down there are the more with... qualified
0: people than me. <laughs> but
1: <laughs> I mean but yeah. I don't think we should um, um, like I mean I, obviously there are yeah. a lot of more qualified people than me to teach Haskell, but like still whenever okay. I get the chance to yeah. To, to teach yeah. Haskell, I do. Uh, sure. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, before we go to Lina, I would like to ask that uh, question about meta programming. You mentioned meta programming yeah. uh, related to Idris, and in general, is, when we when we look at Haskell, right, we we see that there is like there are mechanisms like quasi quotation, whatever it means, right, mm-hmm. and then we have um, some sort of like compile time code generation with template, template Haskell, Haskell. Um, and then but then we have also just you know deriving, which is also mm-hmm. a meta programming tool. Um, yeah, maybe you can tell me or, or and or uh, our listeners a little bit about. Uh, how how would that look in in a language like Idris with like dependent types and stuff? And is there a significant difference between what we have in Haskell and there?
0: Yes and no. So so the thing I did for Idris was it it fulfills the same kind of a role that template Haskell fulfills in Haskell. It. Um, so, so in, in, in these dependent type languages, there's typically like a small little core language, kind of like the role system FC plays in GHC. And then you have, when you're type checking the program that the user writes, you generate code in that core language because it's much easier to, to do everything for a small language than for a big language. And particularly if you're using proofs, then you're uh, in a better position to trust that your proof checking system is correct if the, if it's very small. And so the system that does that translation and type checking at the same time is called an elaborator. And the Idris elaborator had a bunch of nice features. And what I essentially did was made that available to Idris programs so that you could use the features implemented to implement Idris to implement your own things. That was, uh, that was actually how I met uh, the, the Lean developers, because they were working on a sort of a simple a very similar design that ended up being the tactic language in lean three that we and we met up at popple in paris and said hello and that's how i got to know, to know them and and they they you know we, we were sort of independently arriving at, at, at fairly similar ideas um, theirs ended up being fast and having a profiler so and, and a debugger so like they they definitely uh, did really cool stuff there but um but yeah so the but metaprogramming in general is a very broad term, right? Like you've got, um, you've got sort of the, the, the Lisp and Racket style approach where you've got macros and hygiene and little bits of code that expand to other ones. Um, you've got the, the sort of template Haskell style approach where you expose a chunk of the compiler to the program and let it do what it wants uh, at compile time. All sorts of stuff. Uh, it, it's generally it's like making programs that make other programs is meta programming. You know C++ has its templates. There, there's a lot of ways to do all this. And um, if you're interested in what we did for Idris, you could talk. You may want to go look at my talk from ICFP at 2016, where I've got a a quick run through of of what that work was.
1: All right. Um, yeah. That's that. That's certainly is very interesting. By the way, well, when when I look at one of my favorite languages with very good metaprogramming facilities, Lisp style, is um, Elixir. Um, and um, it's like, its syntax is really weird, right? It's like basically kind of Ruby ish, but um, it it does exactly the Lisp style metaprogramming. Um, and obviously, it has the luxury of being like den- uh, dynamically typed, so it doesn't really need to worry about like uh, macros and and typing macros. I wonder, though, um, there is someone, I think Alexis King, or I think Mm -hmm. is very keen on bringing that style of macros in Haskell, eventually. Um, And she has a lot of, like, maybe I'm confusing
0: uh, uh, her with someone else, but but there is this... Alexis has deep, deep knowledge of Racket-style metaprogramming and of Haskell and of GHC and I know that her she has interest in these things. I I don't know if she's working on that particular thing at the moment but I think you're thinking of the All right. Person.
1: So and and for me I wrote quite some uh macros in like pro, like because when we write like macros in C or we write macros in Pure Erlang or we write macros in like C++ or Rust it's horrible. It's not good. It's like it's just you want to stop, right? Like you want to go have a breath of fresh air but when we write the macros in Lisp or in Elixir uh, we just want to keep going because it's fun right? I yeah. wonder if there is this uh, um, so you said that you don't know if, if she's working on this stuff but do you think like as a kind of researcher right? do you think it's even feasible to have Lisp style macros for languages
0: like ours? Yes absolutely um, Lean4 Lean has them Um, uh, if you want to do it for Hindley Milner style languages, there's, uh, an unsolved research question that back when I, back before I had a, a child, I had a little bit of time to try to work on this and my collaborator, Samuel Jeleno is still working on it. We have this little, so, so the problem with a Hindley Milner style language is that type information flows in unexpected directions and, if you want and, and it's unclear how to keep principal typing and have macros that can observe types. Um, you know, Samuel had this idea of essentially when a macro tries to observe a type that happens to be an unsolved meta variable, then it pauses and gets resumed when the type becomes known. And we've got a part, you know, an implementation of that, which is this little language called Glista, which but it's, you know, we haven't like done the formal math and the proofs yet to show that it in fact still has principal typing and all these other nice features but um so I, I think there's some interesting research work still to be done absolutely but but like languages with types can absolutely have you know lisp and scheme style macros
1: that's amazing and so when you're saying that um um i'm, I'm sorry for not not being educated enough uh to nobody knows to, to understand um the difference between so so when you, when you when you're when you're distinguishing this uh approach to type inference from between Haskell and Lean uh you you mean that Lean has a different sure. approach to it and, and what's what's the difference can you talk a little bit about it Yeah Sure
0: So so languages in the in the broad ML family are typically based around the sort of what people call like the Hindley-Milner type system where which has a number of nice features. One of them is that you have principal typing, which means that every program has a single most general type that you can assign, like sort of either that or has a type error. And additionally, we have an efficient algorithm to discover said principal type. And uh, dependently type languages, sort of in the in the sort of tradition of like Martin of type theory and the calculus of constructions. Just absolutely do not have principal typing like a given program could have lots of types and there's not not necessarily one of them that's better than the others and this means that type inference becomes uh, like a best effort kind of thing rather than something you can always rely on solidly all the time and this means that you lose some properties like with a Hindley Miller style system You can change the order that the type checker traverses the program like maybe you it starts going left to right you make it go right to left Uh, or maybe like depth first instead of breadth first and the error messages that it produces in the case of a type error might be different but if the program doesn't have type errors then you're still going to get the same types out Uh, and that's just not the case for the other systems so that means that you are essentially fixing the order that the type checker goes in which means that meta programs have a predictable model, kind of, which is the implementation of the type checker. Whereas uh, in a Hindley-Milner's file system, you don't you you really want to preserve that nice property of being able to switch around the guts of the type checker without breaking people's programs. And so if you expose that information to the metaprogram, then you remove that ability. So so yeah, given that we can traverse these things in any direction. That means that sorry, given that we can only traverse the program in the expected direction when we're doing these dependently type languages, then that means that the particular metaprogramming issue doesn't pop up.
1: That's cool. Um I actually didn't think about it. Um uh, the so the sort of canonicity of types. So do I understand correctly that like the simplest illustration would be that let's say um i have a dependent type that says that something has at most n elements and then i have something that has 3 elements now this something that has 3 elements has infinite amount of types
0: that it has at most 5 elements it has at most 300 so, elements so that's
1: an example of what you're talking about right or, or is mm-hmm. that
0: yeah yeah, yeah. i mean, modulo quibbles about the specific way you encode it in all these yeah, different yeah. varied systems. But yeah, That's 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 exactly.
1: a very interesting I never thought about it even. That's that's a really cool thing to 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 think about how it the implications to type inference. Yeah, wow, wow, that's that's really cool. Um also you're you're saying uh you're mentioning uh lean three and lean four, and I only learned yeah. about uh, lean um this year, I think. And it's already lean four. Oh. How come? Yeah, what, was I living under the rock? Like, how? Why? Why? Why are we not all hyped about it?
0: Um, I don't know why you're not hyped about it. Um, so so lean one and lean two are I never used them. I think my my understanding is that they didn't have many users beyond Leo. Uh, Leonardo Moura is the main developer of Lean. Um, he's previously one of the main developers of Z3, and you know he was. And and Lean kind of started its life being more of, uh, like, an automated proof tool and less of one of these proof-assistant-style programming language situations. And and over time, it's just evolved more in the direction of interactive proof while trying to do, you know, still trying to do good automation, but automation and type theory are are just hard to combine. So, um, and... I think Lean 3 was the first version that had a significant number of users outside of MSR, and um, it's still the, the, mature, the mature choice. Uh, Lean 4 is particularly interesting to me because, first off, it has a macro system inspired by Rackets, which um, is one of my deep loves in the programming world. It's also interesting because it's self-hosting, So there, you know, it's implemented in itself and that has forced them to think hard about a lot of implementation choices. Um, Idris 2 is also implemented in itself, by the way. Um, You know, it's got a nice interactive environment and and all these things written in Lean. And one of of my dreams is, you know, turtles all the way down. Like I want to be able to tear apart my compiler and tweak it and mess with it in the language that I'm working on and... Lean4 seems like a nice step in that direction.
1: And you're writing a book about it, right?
0: Yeah, so Microsoft Research is sponsoring me to write an introductory book on using Lean4 as a programming language. So uh, Lean has been sort of blessed for a long time with having mathematicians who are interested in using it. Um, So, you know, like um, Kevin Buzzard on... Got got into Lean three. I'm not entirely sure why he picked that one I, instead of cock or whatever, but but have but he he's he's done a good job getting other mathematicians on board, and so an interesting thing about Lean, in contrast to these other systems, is that it's got a lot of mainstream mathematicians involved. You know, people who who don't think classical logic is dirty, and in fact are kind of suspicious of why you w- would even consider not using classical logic, uh, and. And that's led to some interesting different trade-offs in the design of Lean that weren't made in other systems, which is good, because as a community we explore more of the design space for these languages. Um, And uh, it's also led to sort of, or I'd say, Lean has been less of a programming language in the past, but once it became self-hosting it had to suddenly be more of a programming language. they wanted a resource to for so that programmers could get involved with lean who didn't have a background in you know high level mathematics and who didn't have a background in type theory and all those sorts of things because mathematicians need programmers to help them with metaprogramming sometimes because a big part of what you want to do is automate your proofs so that you don't have to sit down and type out every case by hand um, you know a lot of mathematicians have programming experience in python or something like that. And, you know, they're not Haskellers. So learning materials that assume you know what a monad is from the programming perspective, aren't going to be useful. Um, At the same time, if, if you want to recruit people to work on lean, which is written in lean um, and they're very, very good C++ programmers, but don't have a deep background in functional programming, there, there wasn't a resource. And so I'm trying to write a book for people who know how to program, but who haven't done any functional programming in the past to sort of learn functional programming in the context of Lean and writing programs with Lean.
1: That's really cool. And, and also you are describing the the goals that you have for the book. And um, I didn't read the introduction, but I read the first and second chapters. And I, I, I want I... to say that uh, so far you're hitting the, the nail on the head. Uh, I don't know if it's yes. Except
0: you know functional programming already, uh, so you're not but, part of the
1: audience. Sure, but the thing is that I could infer your goals from from reading, like for example, how you wrote like chapter two. Great. It's like all about like okay, yeah. let's do some I/O, you know, like yeah. how you in the first chapter, for example, how um, you 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 tell people, okay, let's here's how you make a structure. You might see these errors. This is what they mean. It doesn't matter for the time being. Mm. You know, just like <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. very, very, very good read. I think Thanks. it's uh, it's going to be um, it's like it's going to address the, the, the objectives that you set for it. Great. Um,
0: yeah. So one thing that's kind of fun about the about the process of writing this is that I actually wrote lean macros to test all of those error messages. So the, the lean metaprogramming, the lean macro system is powerful enough that I wrote a little macro where I, put, I, I write a, a, a lean declaration, and then I write a string next to it, and that string says what the error message that it emits should be, and then um, if the thing doesn't make an error message, then that becomes an error, and it fails. If it makes a different error message, then it fails. Uh, but if it makes the same error message, then it's as if I never wrote the declaration at all. And and the type checker will just continue. And you know, this is like maybe a ten line macro. Um, and that way I can make sure that the text of the book keeps up with all the improvements they're making to the error messages in the lean team. That's that's very cool. You know, so, so every 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 couple of weeks I'll go and I'll say, like, okay, use the nightly from today and then and then all the error messages will break and I'll go and fix them.
1: That's that's a very very, very cool thing. Yeah, I mean um I actually do something similar when when i would need to program elixir so i would Mm. obviously we have it very difficult there because it's dynamically typed and it's like you never you never know what you're running Um, and this is why in my dog tests i encode line numbers in my in my tests so and um um and i For things that are error out, I take stack trace at test time, not compile time. And I, if there is a divergence between line numbers, I know at least that I changed something there. And then then it's uh, just another check to to, to go and look at this file and to make sure that the tests are up to date. I love stuff like this. That's that's a very smart thing to do. If you have like this macro or like a blog post about it, please share. We will include it in
0: the notes. I don't. It's, it's the, I don't have the source code of the book publicly oh, available. Okay. Partly because there's a, there's some really hastily written Python code with some really, really impenetrable regular expressions that sort of assembles the various pieces of the book with the various example source files. And, uh, I don't have a lot of time to work on the book because you know, I've got a, full-time i've got a full-time job and i have a two-year-old and and then i that only leaves a few hours a week to actually do the writing work and if i have to spend a lot of time doing tech support on the meta programs then i just won't have any time to get any writing done so it, it's sort of being being secretive at this point is a bit of a self-defense mechanism that's fair but, enough we'll wait <laughs> but at some point it will come out it's just not, but, not yet. but
1: i absolutely love rolling release uh it's like um Know. i don't know if there is rss but like it could be a nice um you know we yeah that's a good idea
0: yeah i should look into seeing what it would take to put an rss feed up for the book otherwise you can follow me on twitter i don't actually post that often but i do announce oh, that's cool. book releases and i announce them on the lean zulip okay we'll put
1: we'll, we'll put the links in the in, in the in the description oh. of the podcast um so one of the things you mentioned about the costs of, of dependent types is that uh, they slow com- the compiler down. I don't think it's... Um,
0: they don't necessarily slow down the compiler, but they can. Like, it's it's certainly not the case that every program with dependent types in it compiles slowly. However, um, the harder you make a compiler work, the slower it's going to get, and the ability to put programs in your types means that the type checker has to run your programs, and you can always write a slow program, like maybe you want to, you know, like call Ackerman of thirty as part of your type. It's, there's nothing that's going to make that yeah. fast.
1: And you can also always depend on the library that uh, that does this, right? So, um, yeah. But uh, Rust, the success success of Rust, I think, has demonstrated us. Because people really don't care about long compilation times. Okay, I'm not dunking on Rust, but anyway. Um, um, yeah, I think that. I think that's I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just. I mean, I, my my experience is I, I use Rust once a year to play ICFPC mm-hmm. uh, which by the way is on this year on September second till September fifth. Um, if you are interested, join our team. link in the description i have no time whatsoever maybe some of our (laughs) listeners thank you um yeah 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 but uh and then there, you know day one it's fine we have no dependencies everything compiles quick fast and then like the second tokyo sneaks in somewhere and if you're in the competitive setting you just have 70 hours to do stuff like Mm. long long compilation times is just Mm. really annoying so this is why in part i'm like I'm half joking, right? But but uh, yeah. but what people seem to care about a lot is is performance. So do, would you say that, for example, in Lean Four in particular, like how does it handle runtime? And do you think that yeah. um, uh, do you think that uh, it's feasible industrially from the performance standpoint?
0: Again, like feasible industrially, like people people always ask, like, is this production ready? Um, I think the answer with lean four is like definitely not. It's, it's not formally released yet. Like it's, it's in like pre-release mode. You know, the, the stable version is still lean three. I would not build a business around software written in lean four today simply because the cost of keeping up with the compiler changes would be way too high. Um, Let alone all the other issues that you might have. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's not done yet, but, and that's okay. Like it'll be done someday. Um, but the, the basic design is going to be, um, I, I think reasonably fast for a lot of purposes. I, I right, like there's um, there's so there's a few challenges that come up. Right, one one thing is uh, that type erasure is an interesting problem for dependently typed languages because type erasure also means value erasure, and you have to think carefully about which parts of the program survive to runtime and which ones don't. Right, like in in Hindley Milner, you just delete all the types, and the rest of the program survives. Um, but that's not going to work in a dependent type language because, you know, maybe the type is being passed as an argument and that matters or, you know, you've got numbers that exist only to please the compiler and you want those numbers to get erased all that stuff. And so I think Idris 2's quantitative type theory is a very interesting uh, answer to this where you can say in the type signature, which parts of the program survive and which parts don't to runtime. Um, I think, uh, cock and lean have this notion of, um, of like propositions, which can get erased, which is also useful, but at the end of the day, like part of the answer is going to be that it depends on the program you're writing and like some advanced in compiler technology, but, but once you've, but once you've figured out your erasure situation, I think that the research community has reasonable answers to this these days, um, then you've got a programming language that is a lot like getting OCaml to run fast. And plenty of businesses can use something like OCaml. You know, and like OCaml is I, I think a really good example here because it's got a nice simple compilation mechanism that's easy to understand. You know, you can mostly look at a program and know what's gonna happen at runtime. Um, you know, like there are certain programs that I wouldn't write in OCaml where you know, like where a garbage collector isn't gonna work, for example. You know, for that I definitely wanna use Rust. Um, But I think of it, you know, like Lean is essentially a strict functional programming language when you come right down to it. Um, It's got a a kind of an interesting allocator based on reference counting. And the reason why reference counting is is interesting here is that one of the big drawbacks of reference counting is cyclic data. You know, you get these cycles and then you need like a traditional collector to collect them, but you can't actually write cyclic data in Lean. It's impossible. So... So that's no issue. Um, right. And that, and that's due to the like termination checking that you get from a dependently typed language. And so because you can't write cyclic data, that big disadvantage goes away. And when you have reference counting, then you can actually check, is this reference count exactly one and about to go to zero? And if it's about to go to zero, then you can mutate the object in place instead of like deleting and allocating a new one. And that means that you can achieve, uh, what do you say? Runtime mutability with logical immutability and kinda of get maybe not the best of both worlds, but some good stuff from each. So I think yeah. I haven't I don't have any experience in writing lean code that has to go super fast. However the lean compiler is mostly written in lean, I use it on a regular basis and it's plenty fast, so so I really you know like I suspect that you know once this is this is me guessing now, right? But but I guess that, you know, once once the dust settles and things are mature, probably lean code is gonna go a fair bit faster than like similar Python code and a fair bit slower than similar V8 code or similar JavaScript code because probably less work will be put into a compiler for it. And that's gonna be fast enough for a great number of businesses and a great number of Industrial production use cases. Yeah,
1: that's that's a very very good uh, and very uh, inspiring assessment. Um, yeah, that's that's that. Uh, I don't have any follow up questions. And okay. also, thank you very much for uh, talking a little bit about the the cool reference counting trick. I guess my only follow up is, yeah. uh, And I'm a little bit confused here. So I see how we sure. can't um, define like cyclic. I don't know structures or something like this, but we do have mutual recursion, right? In Lean. Sort of. Okay, so what do you mean?
0: You have to prove that your recursive functions terminate, and that's part of keeping the logic consistent. And in a strict functional language, the only the only reasonable way to make an actual cycle is to have a reference cell, a mutable reference cell. Yeah, So you can do it with, like, you know a ref in OCaml or something right like in, in a lazy language you can absolutely do all these not tying tricks but but in a strict language you don't get to do that you just have an infinite loop at runtime if you try to make something like that and you know the infinite loop gets ruled out by the termination checker if you're if, you know if you're saying in the in the safe subset at least and and you don't have reference cells so and if you're if you're breaking and, and you know like there are like unsafe perform io kind of stuff in lean and that indeed lets you break the invariance that the language's runtime depends on that sort of in the name unsafe perform io and you know you can break those invariants and probably you could do something interesting but
1: i mean we can we can write a socket acceptor right yeah. for example we sometimes want yeah. to go infinite which is which brings me to to another yeah, yeah, question yeah. like uh
0: so infinite data, like cyclic data, is different That's from true, the infinite yeah. programs, right?
1: But uh, but yeah. with but I asked about recursion. Yeah, if with infinite data, okay, it's understandable. Yeah. Uh, I asked about recursion, and you said, well, you want you need to prove termination. And my question now yes. is like, what if I don't want to prove termination, right? What if I just want to?
0: Sure. How do yeah. you write a web server? Yeah. The classic question. Okay, so so I'm gonna zoom out from Lean a little bit here because different systems have different answers. So one way you can do it is you build an escape hatch into the language, and you say that like I'm going to decorate this function and say that it's partial. Um, and, and for the Haskellers listening, in Haskell people talk about partial functions. They usually mean incomplete pattern matches. Whereas in dependently typed settings, people usually mean functions that are not that are that are not sort of mathematically total. So infinite loops also make you partial. And so you say, like, I'm going to declare this partial, allow it to be partial, and then I'll write it the way I write any other program with an infinite loop in it, and I'm done. Um, and, and that's what you'd have to do in Lean, because Lean doesn't have the other thing you can do, which is to use what's called co-inductive data types. And co-inductive data types are infinite data that, um, where functions over them have to be able to observe a finite prefix of it in finite time. And so there, what you what you do is you. I'm sorry. as, as far as I understand, your, uh, yeah.
1: Haskellers in the audience will recognize their favorite list in your coinductive uh, explanation. So lists in yes. Haskell are coinductive, so, so, actually. I think.
0: Y- yes, basically. Um, so, like, I mean, Haskell doesn't give you like a coinductive reasoning principle of lists. So, but they, they work very much like, like. Ordinary data types in Haskell work very much like codata types in Idris or Agda or something. Or cock. Um, lean just doesn't have them. Um, I think lean three has one of them, which is infinite streams. But I and and you can do some tricks to encode various ones. I'm actually not entirely sure what the state of the art is, but you can't just sit down and declare, here's my codata type, in lean four at least. And so, but in language where you can do that, there you can define uh, a a type which is essentially like a stream of input output actions that could go on either infinitely or potentially infinitely and then cuz your web server like you don't actually want it to fall into an infinite loop right like you want it to serve an unbounded number of requests but you don't want it to just like sit there you know incrementing an integer forever until it wraps around and then continue to integrate, in, in, increment it so there really like you know this principle that you can observe a finite prefix in finite time is actually much nicer than you can write arbitrary, arbitrarily, you know, looping stuff. Assuming that the language is otherwise ergonomic to use, and that is a real question that you have to worry about. But. That's really cool. I, I didn't. I thought
1: about coinductives for streams, but I didn't think about that the web server is actually is uh, a good representation for a web server.
0: Hmm. I think it was Anton Setzer and Peter Dubier, but I could be misremembering cause it's a few years since I've read it. So apologies if I got it wrong, uh, which talks about how to write generally uh, effectful programs. And you can actually encode IO as a conductive type because you can see IO as being a system where you have like a data type that represents commands. And then you have a function from a command to the type of the response you get from the system. You know, so for like get line, that might be string and for print line, it might be unit. And then you can define a program, like you can define a program that does IO as essentially being an infinitely branching tree, or you can see, you can see the world as like an infinitely branching tree. And then you like observe down one branch of that tree. And then the types tell you what you'll get back as a value. And then you can, depending on that and.
1: It's it's really cool. Did, stuff. They define, did they Did they define an illustrative language in this paper?
0: I think.
1: Wasn't there something like lambda i or something? So,
0: I don't remember. I'm sorry. It's it's. Let, been let, about, let's
1: try to after the show. Let's try yeah. to exchange the papers because I have one of my favorite papers. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll one of my we'll favorite papers does very a very similar thing. Um, and I also okay. don't remember the whole de- all of the details. So we should we should link this stuff. Yeah. It's it's like okay. I love stuff like this. It's, yes. it's, yeah, as I said, one of my favorite papers does a very yeah. similar similar thing. Let's let's talk about okay. um, I guess features of Lean Four. And I mean, it's I kind of just my questions are just from me <laughs> because I just played with it a little bit based on your first ch- two chapters and like uh, and and stuff I care about a lot. So. Um, as a, as, a, as a young adult, I tried to write a game in Haskell, and I wanted to have rooms, and I wanted Infocom-like game, like um, basically a text yeah, yeah. adventure. And I wanted to, to have rooms, and I wanted rooms to have different things in them, and I wanted to encode these things mm-hmm. at the type system level. And I didn't know about existential, uh, quantification back then. So mm-hmm. I failed to do it because you can't put an A and a yeah. B in a list of A. Um,
0: sure. Well, you can if you have. Yeah. A yeah. But, type, right? but, but I wanted to, to do it under a, expression yeah. problem
1: about which I also didn't yeah, yeah. know, but I wanted to make yeah, new yeah. rooms. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> right. um, so, um, and when, when I played with, with Lin a little bit, uh I, I got fascinated about how easy it is to represent essentially existential types with um, mm-hmm. um with just a simple uh you know just a simple structure which uh, takes a type in its field right sure um but what I noticed is that when I do that, I get some error messages because it says, you know, I want yeah. type, but you give me type one. So, what's the story here? Sure. Is it related to your uh, the thing that you said before about and how in Haskell type of type is type? And yes. Yeah. <laughs> tell our tell our it is. Uh, audience a little bit about this stuff.
0: Yeah. So back back at the dawn of uh, of Martin Luther's type theory, there was a version which had this rule that type, head, type, type, and you could just sort of write generic things that types of arguments and pass them around. But it turns out that this is logically inconsistent because by working hard enough, you can encode an infinite loop. And so the the technical thing that was, and, and, and this is like very similar to Russell's paradox, you know, so the, the, the set of all sets that don't contain themselves, does it contain itself? Yes. But then it can't No, but then it must, um, it's sort of a very it's a related topic to that and and just as um as the the original type theory was in, was invented to take care of of that problem of impredicativity in set theory um, we ended up with uh, a we we ended up with a way to rule out this sort of arbitrary impredicative quantification so impredicative versus predicative quantification says when I'm going to say for all X in blah, is blah allowed to be the same kind of thing that I'm in the process of defining, or does that have to be a smaller thing? And predicative means it has to be in some sense smaller, and impredicative says that I get to talk about the thing that I'm in from the perspective of myself. And you know, impredicativity is great if you can make it work, but it comes with technical challenges that can make your system inconsistent and thus useless for math. Um, and so it turns out that the the initial version of Martin-Löf's type theory was impredictive and had a consistency problem. So, so we ended up then with a system of universes. They're called where a where each universe and there's, this is another one of those areas where the design space varies quite a lot and different choices are made in Koch and Agda and Lean and Idris, all of them. Uh, but the basic idea is that you can't talk about something that's your own size when you're defining yourself. And so in the case where you're defining where you probably defined a record type with one projection that is a type and another projection that is an inhabitant of that type to do your existential type, then that record type itself would have to have a a bigger universe. It has to be a part of a bigger notion of type so that it doesn't end up with being contained in itself. And thus you avoid all these paradoxes. and normally in Lean, you actually wouldn't say this is in type 1 or in type 2. Normally, what you do is you define a system of constraints. So you'd say that, um, that this type field is in type U, and my overall structure is in type U plus 1. And then that, that gives you a kind of polymorphism, which allows you to then use this in type 0, or actually not in type 0 because it says U plus 1, but you could use it in type 1, type 2, type 5... And so what you end up doing is essentially defining an infinite number of copies of this type simultaneously across all the different universe levels that it could inhabit. And that sounds like a big scary thing, but it's very much like when you define a polymorphic function in Haskell. Like identity is actually defined for every single type in Haskell. It's just you know, because it's polymorphic. So it's that basic idea just for these universes rather than for the, the than for individual okay. types.
1: And and now you can If you if you're writing like this sort of universe polymorphic code, you can uh put this structure uh into like a another universally polymorph sorry, universe polymorphic structure as uh as a type, for example, parameter. Like for example, I can make so let's say I have like the structure E, which has this associated type inside, hidden inside, uh, which as you said is in type one or is in type u plus one if my associated type is in universe u now i can make lists of list of those because list is also defined in a universe polymorphic way right that's yeah, that's, that's right yeah,
0: mm-hmm. um, on the other hand this is not how i would ever write this code the way i would write this code is i would because normally you actually don't want to be able to put any type in there normally you want to put sort of some interesting subset of types in there. So going back to our example of the interpreter for the programming language, where we have a data type representing the programming language's type, like I think it was nat, bool, and functions, and then a function mapping those to real types. Like, let's say you wanna sort of existentially quantify that. Then what you do is you have the first field be that data type, and then you say that the second field, you find its type by calculating based on that code that you put in the first field. And once you do that, then a lot of these size problems go away. Because now you're not storing a type. You're storing a piece of data that represents types. And that, and that way you get rid of the universe lift.
1: Nice. Nice.
0: And, it, and that doesn't work in every case, but it yeah. works in quite a lot of Well,
1: I was very um, un- uneducated industrially. So I was always wanted to write like gen- general stuff. So this is why my life was hell before I... Uh, discovered uh wadler's uh expression problem email because i thought that intuitively i thought that there must be a solution in any language i'm using right but uh, so it was relieving to to understand that sometimes we just have to like go for a closed type right and yeah. then we'll extend our functionality by refactoring and we have beautiful facilities for refactoring yeah. in in haskell and ml languages so absolutely
0: Especially in Haskell, no. I think. We don't have beautiful facilities for automatic refactoring, right? Like hair exists and HLS does some cool things, but we're still, we're still a ways from what you can do with Kotlin and IntelliJ, but right, hopefully right. that will change.
1: But, uh, but yeah, manual, but, refactoring. But manual refactoring, like where the compiler helps
0: you not screw it up. Yeah. That, that's uh, great.
1: But yeah, honestly, I want to say that for this particular thing of making rooms that can have that can kind of store different things while still being rooms without type classes, because if, let's say I don't want to use type classes, it was like, it's so easy. I I was very, very happy with, with how, how, how easy it is with Lin. Um, okay. Um, so, um, you mentioned when you were talking about Haskell, how Haskell is like really, really good for one, two, three, four, right? So, um, you mentioned type classes there, right? And, um, Type classes are used and abused and hated and loved by many, but at the end of the day, if we look at any sufficiently large, let's say, Haskell code base, full of type classes. Um, So what's the situation in Lean as far as type classes go, and uh, how is subtyping handled, stuff like this?
0: Type classes exist in Lean. Um, It's different than Haskell in a few ways. One is that there are, is that the arguments to a type class need not be types because, you know, like, for example, you could put a number in there as well. Like, cause why not? You know, we have data at the type level. Um, or rather I should say that there is no fundamental distinction between the levels in the way there is in something like Haskell. Um, so like the equivalent of, of like from integer in Haskell in lean is actually a type class called of nat and it takes the actual nat as an argument so like, let's say you have a data type that only represents the even numbers. You can just make it odd literals be a type error, which is pretty cool. Uh, and, uh, but Lean doesn't have a notion of like unique or like uh, of like unique implementations of type classes. You know, so, so, so a, given, a given type class resolution problem might have many instances that satisfy it. And then you can give the Lean compiler some priorities to pick between them. And it has some rules it will use to pick which one it thinks is the best. Or the most relevant and so any code that assumes that they're unique is buggy in lean where whereas that's commonly assumed in haskell code um that's scary let's see um well i mean you can put a proof in it that says it does that's the true. right thing
1: you actually actually it's less scary right like because you know, like, if you don't put the proof then you write bugs right so it's like it's cool in a way right
0: I mean, it's it's just a different feature and it has a different trade-off and you use it differently. Like, like you know, like you can't just port Haskell code line for line to Lean. Like, first off, it's strict, but second off, a lot of the parts of the language just work differently and that's okay. You know, there's more than one programming language in the world. Um, and let's see, it. Um, where Haskell has the defaulting rules, Lean has a notion of default instances, so you can essentially make your own default rules by making your own type class instances. This this worries me, but it's used to, for reasonable things in the standard library so far. Um, they've got some nice work done on making instance resolution be efficient. There, there's a paper on that that we could add a link to the description later. You'll email me with a list of all the things I need to find you links to, right? Absolutely. Okay, great. Um, and... Let's see what
1: else is there um I mean what about stuff like yeah. uh stuff like uh type fam uh, sorry yeah uh type families and uh, multi parameter type classes so like in general multi parameter type classes how how they handled, and uh, are there facilities to yeah. say, okay, I have like functional dependency
0: sure. that's what I meant yeah. yeah so so type families are not so relevant when you have full dependent types. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, so sorry, I actually I but, actually but, said uh, the wrong fun thing. Deps, I meant no, It's fun. fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, so as far as fun depths go, there because we don't have this like uniqueness property talking about actual functional dependencies doesn't make a lot of sense. But there is a notion of something called an output parameter. So uh, internally like lean when it sees a type class resolution problem, it won't start searching until the types involved have been solved, like if they're just bare meta variables it won't go do it. Unless those parameters are marked as outputs, and then they're intended to be found by doing instance search, and so, so in that sense, they they work kind of like a fun dep. But but there's no sort of global check that there in fact is a functional dependency. In other words, that you can treat the calculation from the inputs to the outputs as a real function, the way you can in Haskell.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So it's used for similar things, but it's not actually functional dependencies.
1: That's that's very interesting. Um... Wow. I mean, that, that's a very, that's a thing to think about, right? Yeah. Because when I looked at, so when I looked at the, how type classes are resolved, I thought, oh, it's not I who is writing, uh, buggy code. It's lean that has an incomplete sol- uh, resolver for instances. And I have to wait for a little bit and it's going to be doing global uniqueness checks and stuff like this.
0: Nope. Wow. And what would it even mean to be globally unique, right? So, so this when you're writing proofs about programs, then you'd also need to have like a notion of equality of instances, like in order to say whether two instances are the same, right? Because talking about uniqueness is fundamentally talking about sameness, because it says that if there exists two, then they are equal. Um, and well, but, but once you start talking about instance equality, like that. That's like a that's like a global non-modular property of a program, and and like that's problematic for various reasons. And also, you'd want that available as a reasoning principle in your language, right? To say that any two instances of this type class are equal, because if you can't reason using that, but you are restricted by it, then you're not going to have a good time. And you know, I, I think a nice principle of these languages is that anytime they keep you from doing a thing. They should use the fact that you can't do that thing to make your life easier in some other way. And it's very unclear to me what that principle would actually look like in a language like this. Like that's like an open research problem of how to do. And one thing that one choice they've made in lean and like for example, part of why they don't have co-inductive types is they want to be very, very conservative with their type theory and not do innovation in the core theory because they want it to use sort of tested, well- proven results to make the mathematicians
1: feel safe. Nice, nice. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm again, I'm a complete uh, amateur as far as PLT goes. It's interesting for me, but uh, not to a degree where I actually did something meaningful. But uh, yeah, I was thinking like maybe we can even symbolically forbid to define um, another instance, but I think I, I can't, I don't know how to write it. Like, I don't know how Neither. I would. So it's it's impossible right to like symbolically analyze like um yeah symbolically I don't think analyze. it's
0: impossible I think I think-